This episode of the Ready Room is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com/trekfm. This is JG Hertz for General Mar Talker on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to the Ready Room, show number 130, Pride Before a Fall. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me this week is Matthew Rushing. We'll be talking about some Star Trek news, including Destination Star Trek Germany, Gates McFadden's new play, Lost Audio Commentaries, a new release date for Enterprise Season 4 Blu-rays, and we field questions from the fleet. Then in the feature, we're joined by Colin Higgins to discuss the Enterprise episode, Damage. So let's step into the ready room. Hello, Matthew. It's good to have you back with me on The Ready Room. It's been a long while, actually, I guess, since you've co-hosted The Ready Room with me, although we do two shows together every week. So um, I can't say long time no see. You know, that's true, Chris. Although for The Ready Room, I mean, I feel like a hobbit, like I've been there and back again. I'm going on an adventure! And it's been years since I've been on The Ready Room. So I'm just really excited to be back uh, hosting the I'd say the piece de resistance of Trek FM, the crown jewel, you know. um, So it's great to be back with you here, Chris, on the Ready Room. Thanks. All right. Well, uh, we're going to talk about in the first news story today a con that's coming up. But, you know, uh, you just went to a con yourself, didn't you? I did. Uh, I went to the Sci-Fi Expo, which is linked with the Dallas Comic Con that they do at the beginning, closer to the beginning every year. Uh, Had a really great time. Got to meet Karen Gillan from Doctor Who, uh, which is everybody can see if you follow me on Twitter uh, at MattRushing02. I am a huge fan, one, of Doctor Who, and two, of Karen Gillan. So um, it was probably the best day of my life. Um, uh, yeah, it was just fantastic. Uh, had a great time there, and I, I and I was so sad. I, I actually missed our friend Larry Nemechek's, um Star Trek continues. They they premiered the episode two, and I I was in a line, and I couldn't get out of that line for something else, and so I missed that, and so I'm gonna have to go online and watch that now with with Larry, uh, their Lalani episode. So, how was apart from the Star Trek continues Lalani premiere, of course? How was the Star Trek presence at that convention in general? Because it was it was not a Star Trek convention, of course. It was just a general, uh, like a Comic Con, right? Uh, yeah, it was, um, you know, like, uh, all great sci-fi, the conventions, uh, I saw plenty of, of Star Trek people, uh, plenty of Star Trek memorabilia. Uh, there was a whole family of Klingons, uh, there. I saw a lot of Starfleet officers, um, some sexy, some not so sexy. And, uh, <laughs> there were, um, uh, yeah, I think the, 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 the 
Trek contingent there was great. And so actually uh, at our Comic Con here in Dallas this year, William Shatner uh, will be there. And uh, I'm thinking about going. I, I feel like um, it might be time for me to go see the Shat in, in person. I think you should. Uh, and, and you know, and, and, and the, the other thing is, is, is you know, as as those actors from the original series do get older, I, I don't know how many more years that I'll get the opportunity. Uh, I got to see right. Leonard Nimoy a few years ago at the Dallas Comic Con, and it was actually his last time uh, to be at any cons. So he was he was making his farewell tour on the cons, and so it was great to be able to do that. So I'd like to do that before Shatner uh, decides that for him he, he'd also like to retire. So, right. um, yeah. It was great, you know. Going to a con is is always fun. You got to do it before Shatner disappears into the Nexus. Exactly, exactly, and then kind of reappears and falls yeah. off a bridge. Well, I hope he doesn't fall off a bridge. Although he did in the in the Priceline commercial, though, when they tried to kill him off, right? This is very true, he, <laughs> and he came back. So he know. came back. So he's back. Well, I think you should go to that convention in Dallas and see Shatner there, Matthew, because it's going to be much easier for you. Then going all the way to Germany, which is our first news story today, Destination Star Trek Germany is coming up this weekend, and Shatner's going to be there. Not only is he going to be available on Saturday and Sunday for people, but he is actually going to be moderating the cast reunion of the TNG cast. Yeah, this would be really exciting. I mean, one, um, we know that Shatner is doing the documentary uh, that he's been making about the yeah, that's right. Next Generation series and, yeah. and the crew itself. So um, I think that this would be really interesting because my guess is, is that he's formed some pretty good relationships. I mean, obviously him and Stuart are very close. They're great friends. Um, they've done a lot of things together in the past. And um, I think it's it would be really fun to see him do this. You know, I can't fly to Germany, um, but I think this would be really fun con because German fans are insane about star trek like yeah. they are some of the best star trek fans out there on the planet so um i think that this would be an extremely fun con to be at um yeah. and i'm imagining Andorian fights breaking out i'm imagining you know bloodline uh, just flowing like you know water around that place so except instead this, of bloodline it'll be your know, great beer Ah, yes. So, I mean, can you imagine the great beer that you could get at 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 a at a German con? I yeah, mean, I would I would go just the for the beer. Yeah. I mean, man, this is this is a fantastic idea. So, I'm uh man, did you see though the price for the VIP ticket, Chris? Yeah. It's a little bit steep. 2999 euros, yeah. which I didn't look up to see what the translation was that for in US dollars, but it's a lot. It's more than $3,000. In fact, it's $4,100. Good night. I cannot imagine spending that much money on a con. Like, no. <laughs> oh, my God. That's insane. I mean, did, Chris, did you see what, what is the limited VIP pass actually get you? You know, I actually didn't look into all the details of that. Um, I would hope that it got you, like, private lunch with William Shatner and maybe like a back rub from Susie Plaxon and I don't know what for that amount of money. Oh gosh. As Solar. Yeah. Yeah. As Solar. Of course. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. So I, you know, even the, just the basic, the silver tickets are, are over $300 and uh, the standard 
tickets are 50 bucks on the the starting end and then they go up to $80 just for like I, I, your, okay. your daily standard. Yeah, my guess is is that you have the VIP ticket. Not only did you get probably hopefully some sort of back rub by Solar, but hopefully you're also getting every single one of the autographs from all the hope. people and a and a picture with them because yeah. that is just an insane amount of money. I would hope. I mean, if I paid $4100 for a ticket and they told me you still have to pay individually for photographs and for autographs and stand in line and stand line, I would not be happy at all. So um, I, I think, yeah, I think the ticket prices are a little bit outrageous for this. When they said they were going to Germany, though, that may have seemed a little bit odd for a lot of people. But, you know, I think that Germany may be the second largest market for Star Trek after the U.S., isn't it? At least UK, Germany, U.S. have to be the three big ones. Uh, and as we know, Matthew, from the novels, the German editions of the novels generally have their own covers, and they're really, really fantastic covers. Well, Chris, as we like to say on on uh, literary treks where we judge a book by its cover, they <laughs> really do have the best covers. I they mean, um, that's where we got the great artwork. Um, they had the great artwork for uh, Homecoming with Janeway and Seven. Yeah. Um, they had the next series, um, the Spirit Walk series with the Chakotay and Harry. Um, really well done covers there, and uh, I mean their Typhon Pack series covers all fit together to create a really beautiful mural work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I really wish. And, oh, and their Destiny covers did the same thing. I don't understand why the the um, Pocket in the U.S. doesn't do the same thing because um, it, it's really beautiful yeah. when you know you have these these great looking pieces of art that I mean I'm like. I want that on my wall. It's so good. So. Yeah, it's really beautiful. As for the convention itself coming up, it's at the Messe Frankfurt. starts this coming Friday, February 21st, and runs through Sunday. The opening ceremonies are Friday night at 7.30. And Matthew, you and I really should be there because the very first appearance of anyone involved with Trek is Ronald D. Moore and Ira Stephen Bear together. Okay, now see that is legit right there. I really want to be at this con to be able to see those two guys together talking. And I'm pretty sure you're gonna get you know Ronald D. Moore with a with a nice scotch in his hand and, and maybe a <laughs> yeah. cigar. I, you know, I don't know if you can smoke in German buildings, but I feel like he'd probably be doing that. Ira Stephen Bear, who knows what color his goatee is gonna be and what color glasses he's gonna be wearing. Um, I think so he should really do it exciting. like the German flag. The goatee. I think you should make it look like a German flag. Well, yeah, that would be fantastic. I, I think the German <laughs> fans would really dig that. Or, you know, uh, maybe shave like uh, a nice like Klingon, um, like a Klingon beard or something. Yeah. I don't know. Like get the nice like twirled mustache down on the sides, <laughs> you know, with the Klingon goatee. I think that would look yeah. really good on an Ira. So. All right. All right. Well, I wish we could hear that one because I know we would love to hear oh, the two of so them together. Good. Otherwise, uh, Saturday features Marina Surtees, Gates McFadden, LeVar Burton, Michael Dorn. I guess I should say Marina and Gates are going to be together. LeVar and Michael are going to be together. Then Brent Spiner, Carl Urban, Connor Trenier, and Dominic Keating together. William Shatner. And then a great DS9 panel of Armin Shimmerman, 
Renee Abergenoy, Jeffrey Combs. He is everywhere. Casey Biggs, oh, all together. Man. Uh, then Susie Plaxon, who's doing, actually, it's not a back rub clinic, but it's a makeup clinic. So, because she's played quite a few. Um, I'm assuming it's makeup is in the different aliens that she's played on Star Trek, not her selling cosmetics or something like that. Yeah, you know, I I didn't think that she was like into Mary Kay all of a sudden um, and was trying to get German fans into (laughs) it as well. (laughs) And Star Trek convention is a perfect place to do that. I don't don't know. You get to, you know, if you sell enough products, you get to be the pink Andorian. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, pink Andorian. Chris, (laughs) that's so weird. It really is. Um, (laughs) Sunday, pretty much the same group. Um, are they're all appearing again, but in different combinations, like Marina Surtees and Michael Dorn will be together. LeVar Burton and Gates McFadden will be together wait, on wait, Sunday. Wait, Marina Surtees and Michael Dorn? Like, nobody wants to see Worf and Troy together. Ugh. Right. I think they'll be very funny together, though. They are both very this funny. This is true. They are. Yes. They do play off each other well in real life. So. They really do, yeah. So again, that's coming up, and uh, we're curious to see how it turns out, how the turnout is for it. There are still tickets available. Uh, as far as I know, it's not sold out at this point uh, a week going in, but maybe it will be uh, beforehand. And maybe a lot of people are just going to drive in. You know, One good thing about it being on the European continent is that you know the distances aren't so far, so people can come over, hop in for the weekend, get their trek on in places where they're, they don't normally have a convention. So... We'll see how all that plays out. If you want more information, you can go to DestinationStarTrek.com and find out what's going on. Now, Gates McFadden is going to be there in Germany, Matthew, I just mentioned, but she also has something coming up. It actually happened on February 14th, but before this episode uh, dropped. Her new stage play with her Ensemble Studio Theater LA is premiering. It's called The Ugly One. Which is definitely not a reference to Gates. Exactly. No, it is not. Um, Gates is beautiful. Everybody knows if they've listened to any of the shows that I've ever been on. I'm a huge fan of Gates and Fagin. And it's just redheads in general, obviously. Uh, Karen Gillan from Doctor Who, redhead. Um, and now Gates, obviously Gates McFadden, uh, redhead. I, I just have a huge thing for Not redheads. Punky Brewster, right? Now, she was also a redhead. You don't know. No, uh, <laughs> uh, not really. Um, so... No, this is really exciting. I I love to see the fact that the 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 uh, so many of the Star Trek actors were stage actors, and it comes across in their delivery, uh, especially Avery Brooks and his his very uh, interesting cadence that he had. Um, you know, with the delivering of lines, very well pronounced words all the time, every single time on the show. Help um, so, me. Yeah, exactly. It, just like that. Uh, it's a great. I, I really like that, Chris. It's, you're doing really well. Uh, you, thought, you thought Avery Brooks better. was here on the show today, didn't you? Yeah, I thought he was. Uh, <laughs> you know, or you know, like William Shatner, his the way that he paused and would get it right there, and so earnest in his delivery. Uh, you know, so. Uh, but I think it's great that the, the fact that they are so still involved in the theater. I mean, um, Patrick Stewart as well, um, always continuing to be involved in theater. And um, Gates is, I think, uh, really established herself as a really fantastic director of plays and uh, seems to do really well. So I wish her all the best in this endeavor. Definitely. And so this opens up, if you're in L.A. and you want to check it out, the 
premiere was February 14th, but the official opening was February 15th, so this past weekend, and it's going to be running all the way until March 24th with performances at 5 and 8 p.m. on Saturdays, 7 p.m. on Sundays, and 8 p.m. on Mondays. They're all taking place at the Speakeasy at the Ensemble Studio Theater LA at the Atwater Village Theater. So uh, you can go check it out. We'll put a link to the Ensemble Studio Theater LA website in the enhanced podcast here and in the show notes if you want to find out more. And one more little kind of a coda to this story is that Gates McFadden has partnered with Public Radio International with their program, to the best of our knowledge, to dramatize the winners of a national science fiction writing contest. And I think that's really cool because if you've heard, and they have some of these on Audible, who's our sponsor for the show, but they have uh, some of these cases where the um, Star Trek actors have gotten together and dramatized classic works of fiction. And it's really fantastic. And I think it's really cool that she's teaming up with PRI to do this for those who actually win this writing contest. Yeah, I I love the fact that um that stars will do this and I think anything to promote reading is is fantastic. Reading good science fiction is great. I mean, science fiction is uh such an important part of literature and and what it can teach us and and make us think about and so I, I love seeing uh these actors and specifically Gates here being a part of this. Um they all have you know they are they're not people that were really, you know, had voices for, for radio. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't just think of them as, as being a good voice, but so many of them have great voices and, um, really do well with, uh, reading a book. Like, obviously I could listen to, uh, Patrick Stewart, read the phone book and I'd be enthralled, uh, alone. So I think that this is great that then putting those talents to use and, and promoting, um, great books and, and helping people to get into reading them as well. Definitely. So this is at ttbook.org if you want to go find out a little bit more about that. And we'll probably have some more news on that as as we get closer and they actually start uh, recording the dramatizations on that. All right, Matthew, another thing that was very interesting that popped up on Trek Core this past week is that they have uncovered lost audio commentaries. Now, Larry has told us before here on the show about the fact that Star Trek.com, before the whole editorial staff was let go in 2007 as part of CBS's corporate restructuring, which, by the way, if anyone was wondering why Star Trek.com kind of died for a while there in 2007, 2008, and went a couple of years without really being updated, that's what happened. There was that corporate restructuring and the editorial staff was, was sent away. Well, we know from Larry that they had actually recorded a number of commentaries that were going to be audio pieces, kind of like they did for Battlestar Galactica. So say we all. Before the DVDs came out, if you remember, Ronald D. Moore was recording. That's where you get the whole whiskey and the cigar thing, right? With the the scotch. He was recording podcasts to go along with every episode of Battlestar Galactica. And they were doing a few of those for Enterprise when it was on... Unfortunately, they got lost. Some of them have shown up on DVD sets since then, but some of them really, truly got lost. And now they've been recovered by TrekCore. And I also point out at at the closing of the article on TrekCore, they send out a thank you to our own Drew Stewart, 005 on Twitter, for helping them recover some of these. I, you know, Drew, fantastic. Um, 
Drew is the best. Uh, he's also the Miles to my Julian, and so um, that's really exciting. Two, Chris, I saw this, and I was really excited. Um, I do not own uh, any other version of the motion picture other than the director's cut, because after I saw that, I felt like all the other ones were inferior, and I really liked what they had done there. And they found the feature-length uh, commentary for the director's cut of uh, TMP that was made available on the website with the film's restoration team, which is just so fantastic because they actually go through and talk about a lot of the things, the visual effects that they added, restoring that. They also talked about um, the idea of uh, them revising those opening credits um, with Jerry Goldsmith's score and, yeah. and you know additional uh, cuts that they made to kind of streamline the film's presentation and all of that. So very excited actually to download this and go listen to it as I'm watching the film um, because I, to me, this is such a great version of the film. Um, and I really thought that those extra special effects really helped the film. And it's why I don't own any of the films on Blu-ray yeah. because none of the director's cuts are there. To me, you know, if I watch Star Trek 2 and I don't get the scene with Scotty and his nephew, I it, it feels out of place now. Like I, I want that stuff in there because to, yeah. it, it – it, I'm used to it at this point. So um, I'm really excited about this. Yeah. So we should say besides the Enterprise tracks, there is this one for the motion picture. That's the third one that they recovered. And like you said, it it is visual effects. It's visual effects supervisor Darren R. Dotcherman, restoration supervisor Michael Matasino, and producer David C. Fine. And you you can download it. That's one of the great things too. TrekCore, they recovered these. And they've restored them, they've prepped them, and they now have them there on the website where you can go download them and you can play them along with the motion picture or with the episodes, which we'll talk about in a moment from Enterprise. You know, Matthew, I I wish that they would do more of these commentaries on a movie like this. I, I think it's really great to have the visual effects crew on and they should have, you know, the composer as a separate track and have more of these different tracks because... What they did with the, you know this weird thing with the Star Trek Into Darkness commentary, which is not a normal commentary, the way they did it, it's kind of interesting, which is that they do bring in different groups of people who worked on the movie, but they bring them in for portions of the movie. And so you end up like watching a portion of Into Darkness where you really want to be hearing about a certain aspect of the movie, but you can't because that's not the group they've got in there at that moment. It'd be cool if they would do that all the way straight through the movie, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I, you know, they actually do that on uh, the Lord of the Rings mm. editions. They they have different commentary tracks with different types of people, you know, going yeah. through the film. And honestly, to me, the Lord of the Rings DVDs have, uh, and and extended editions have been the um, I Ching of, you know, just extras. I mean. Literally, there were nine hours of an of appendices for The Hobbit. I mean, yeah. fan stinking tastic. There's no better, uh, you know, look at the making of a film than those. I, I don't understand why more films don't do that because so many, especially genre fans, we love that kind of stuff. We love the minutia of making it. We love seeing how you've done it and the storyline and everything like that. So. Give us that kind of info because we will eat it up. I mean, you did that kind of work. If you were to release, say, all of the original films with those kind of extras, 
oh my gosh, I would I would go out and pay for that. Yeah. But you know, they just kind of keep releasing the films and maybe giving you one or two things and it's just not anything exciting, you know. Um so give us the ultimate basically edition yeah. with, you know, the most extras possible. Um and, and then with these kind of commentaries, that would be fantastic. Definitely. So you can add one to your motion picture viewing experience by downloading this one. As for the Enterprise ones, which I mentioned at the beginning, they did them for Judgment and for North Star. And they also did them for Twilight and In a Mirror Darkly and Terra Prime. Now, the Twilight commentary was released as part of the Alternate Realities fan collective set in 2008. And then it's on the Season 3 Blu-rays as well. The ones for In a Mirror Darkly, they're actually two. You know, they did it for parts one and two. I always, Mm -hmm. these two part episodes, I always refer to them just by the name. Right. And and think of it as one episode. Those were released with the season four DVDs and they'll be on the Blu-rays as well, along with Terra Prime. But Judgment and North Star, these were released after the DVDs were pressed and they were meant to be companion audio files available through the website. The problem was that then the restructuring happened and the editorial staff was sent away and these things actually disappeared from online and you couldn't get them anymore. And so they've just now been recovered. Now, the Judgment track features David A. Goodman, who wrote the episode, and Star Trek.com's then editorial director, Tim Gaskell. And this one was actually released online the same day the DVD set dropped in the store. And then it disappeared. Now, the North Star track features assistant producer Mike Demerit, along with David A. Goodman and Tim Gaskell. This one wasn't released online until two weeks after the DVD set dropped. So it feels like something where they decided late in the process, oh, you know what? Maybe it would be a good idea if we did some commentaries for episodes. And so they couldn't get them ready in time for the DVDs. And then they tried to do the online distribution thing and uh, fell through the cracks. But that's what you can expect from them. And you can download them from TrekCore. We'll put a link in the show notes and here in the Enhanced Podcast. And you can go over. They give you lots of background information on that page. And uh, then they actually have a big button for each one so that you can download it. Uh, while we're talking about Enterprise, Matthew, this is just a quick story here. A while back, we told you about the Enterprise Season 4 Blu-rays, which were slated to drop on April 1st. And at the time, I was certain that it was not an April Fool's joke, but now I'm not so sure because we have a new release date. Yeah, um, it's going to be, unfortunately, April 29th instead of April 1st. So April Fool's early. Um, and it's not going to be released then. Um, I'm hoping that uh, this will actually, um, you know, this is helping them maybe put the finishing touches on some extras that they I really so. want out yeah. there or something like that. Um, you know, you've got some great extras here um, before her time decommissioning the Enterprise, a you know, great four-part documentary with the cast and the crew. Um, and then this is, I think going to be fantastic is um, in conversation writing Star Trek enterprise. And if you saw the, the writer's room on the, the next generation Blu-ray series, that was fantastic. Watching those guys bounce back and forth and talk about what yeah. it was like working on the series. And I mean, it was, it was great. So I'm really looking forward to having these guys uh, talk about this together um because this writing team i think really did a great job 
uh, especially in season four. Unfortunately, Manny Cotto in his magic bag of hindsight is not on the writer's room here. Uh, Mm. I'm disappointed about that because I was hoping he'd be able to pull out that bag and kind of give us some of his, um, well, hindsight for what, you know, season five and whatnot would have told. To pull is half Romulan. Yes. (laughs) So, that would have actually been kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I wish he was there too. I'm sure it was a scheduling issue probably to not, not being able to get him on there with the rest of the group. But but yeah, well, we've talked about these extras quite a lot uh, in the past. So we just, we wanted to let you know that the de- there's going to be a delay in the release, but I'm sure that it will make the set even better. I'd, I'd much rather, as we just talked about commentaries that were originally created, but didn't make it onto DVD sets because of, of time I, I'm glad here that they'll just postpone it for a month, essentially, and make sure that it's all there uh, in place for us. So watch for that. Okay, we have one more thing to talk about in this segment, Matthew. We have our questions from the fleet segment where, listeners, you can send in questions about Star Trek, anything you want us to talk about, anything you want to know, and we'll discuss it here on The Ready Room. And this one is from Jason Sorensen in Southern California. And Jason asks about the number 47. He says, frequent appearance of the number 47 runs rampant through the Star Trek saga. This is a bit of trivia that many Trek fans are aware of. However, it seems as though 47 is starting to become more widespread in many other TV and movie productions. Is this a Hollywood conspiracy? What is the source and significance of the number 47? Matthew, I I can speak to it from a Star Trek angle a bit. I'm not sure if I can speak to it from a broader TV angle. Have you noticed the number 47 popping up anywhere? You know, I every once in a while I'll notice it at another show, and it, I I wonder if it's uh, a reference to Star Trek, like somebody was a secret Star Trek fan and mm-hmm. they knew the number 47, you know, and that it was kind of a inside joke. Uh, and so, but I I don't. I've never thought of it as like a Hollywood conspiracy, but who knows? Maybe that's the answer to life, the universe, and everything. It wasn't actually 42, it was 47. We just got it wrong. Right. Well, it's 42 adjusted for inflation. Yeah, there you go. So, <laughs> You know, I don't know. My thought would be that probably because it was so prevalent in Star Trek for so long, and it's something that Joe Minoski originally started introducing on the next generation that uh, it appeared so far and then they got creative with it right like instead of 47 they would put 74 or they would put like 317 or they would put different things or they would use letters as well like it would be like like d7 with d being the fourth letter of the alphabet and it was on there for so long that it wouldn't surprise me as you say a lot of writers they enjoyed the the little joke on Star Trek and they just kind of picked it up themselves and they started putting it in their scripts for other shows, maybe. I don't know. What I find interesting, though, is that Joe Minoski went to Pomona College in California and apparently there is a group there called the 47 Society. And this group claims that there is a mathematical proof that all numbers are equal to 47 and that the number 47 occurs in nature more often than any other numbers. And hmm. I don't really know. I mean, I've never seen the mathematical proof on that, but it's it's kind of an interesting concept. Like maybe it's not a Hollywood conspiracy. Maybe it is a galactic conspiracy. 
man, uh, apparently the uh, the prophets or the Iconians or something are just having a nice joke at our expense at this point, I guess. I guess, something like that. So, um, I don't know. That's uh, Our only thought on it would be that writers have uh, picked it up because they've watched Star Trek over the years, and it's so prevalent, and it's making its way into other scripts. So, um, it's fun. Though. Although I think a lot of people are probably getting tired of it at this point. In fact, that's kind of what <laughs> happened on DS9, where the frequency started to decrease a lot as the writing staff kind of got tired of the joke. And so you don't see it as much. Um, but it did continue. You even see it in Enterprise. I know there's the one scene where uh, Paul's making her way, where she's having hallucinations and she's making her way to the um, turbo lift. And you can see it very clearly on Blu-ray where everything is very clear. On the panel, it has 47. All right. Well, if you have your own questions for questions from the fleet, please send them to us. We'd love to hear from you and and talk about whatever you want us to talk about here during the news segment. And to do that, just go to trek.fm slash contact. On the form there, there is an option for questions from the fleet for the ready room. Just choose that and uh, send it in to us, just like Jason did. And let us know what you want to hear about. And Jason, thanks so much for sending in your question today. Okay, Matthew, that's all we have in news. But before we jump into the feature, where we're going to be joined by Colin to talk about the Enterprise episode Damage, we'd like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. They're helping us bring the ready room to you. And Audible is the premier source for audiobooks online. They have more than 150,000 titles for you to choose from. They have new titles coming every week, hundreds of new titles, in fact. Classics, bestsellers, new releases, they have some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive, Federation, and Spock's World. And today I'd like to recommend something a little bit different than usual. Remember back, Matthew, do you remember back in the 90s, what was it, 97, I believe it was, when Peter David started his new series called New Frontier with Captain Calhoun? I do remember that. Did you read those? You know, I did not. I did not get a get into the new frontier series well you need to read it because leffler is in it ah yes i do remember that that was one of the people that was in it as well as um uh shelby from best of both worlds and so he had pulled a a few of those minor characters out of the next generation and pulled them into new frontier yeah but shelby i mean you don't need shelby leffler leffler is in there matthew no i know leffler's (laughs) definitely where it's at well I, i did read them when they first came out i remember reading each individually and then later they published them as an omnibus books one through four there have been many books since then in the series but audible has the omnibus version in audiobook format and you should go check it out matthew since you haven't read them and everyone else uh, go check it out as well they're very interesting books a little bit different take on star trek and remember they were written at the time kind of the golden age of star trek when tng and ds9 voyager and everything was going on the tng films were going on it centers around the uss excalibur captain calhoun he's kind of a questionable choice for captain so uh, interesting take that Peter David has there. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get this book absolutely free by just going to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and signing up for a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is. If at the end of that trial you decide not to stick with Audible, 
nothing to lose because you still get to keep that audiobook. That's yours. But if you're listening to podcasts, you're going to love audiobooks. And Audible has so many to choose from. It'll be hard for you to figure out what what to use your credits on because you get credits as a member every month. Uh, There are so many choices there. So go check it out. Check out New Frontier, Books 1 to 4, or anything else that you want to get from Audible. And that will help us keep the ready room coming to you. So again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we really thank Audible for supporting the ready room and the network. Things began to look desperate for Archer and the NX-01 crew near the end of their mission in the Expanse. Damage begins with the Enterprise in the middle of battle, nearly destroyed, and Archer still missing. Today we're going to discuss this part of the Zindi arc and some of the broader reaching story elements that play out in the episode. And to help us do that, I'm very happy to have with us for the first time in a while, host of Melodic Treks, and of course best known to listeners for Trek News and Views, Supreme Commander of Trek FM Europe, <laughs> Colin Higgins. Hello, Colin. Hello. It's uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to be back on the ready room after all this time. Yeah, it's good to have so, you back. It's, uh, let's hope we can bring some sophistication to the proceedings. <laughs> okay, yes. Well, just, you know, just with the accent, it will sound much more sophisticated than we normally do. Yeah. Accents always make people sound smarter. I mean, you know, that's why British children, we I mean, you as Americans, we always think that they're geniuses. I mean, one, their vocabulary, and two, in this the posh accent, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't judge all the kids by what you see on TV. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> hey, it's on TV. It has to be true. Has to be true, yeah. yeah. And if it's on Wikipedia, it's definitely oh, true. Exactly. I mean, nobody would lie to you there. It's the internet. No. Good, no. Abraham Lincoln said that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right, and it says that on wiki quotes, so it has to be true, right? Exactly, exactly. So it has to be true, yeah. It has, it has to, to be, be true. true. That's right. Wiki does not lie. All right, guys. Well, before we kick off the discussion, some listeners have asked for a brief episode synopsis to refresh their memories heading into our features because, you know, we pick episodes at random. And so maybe many people listening haven't seen the episodes we're talking about in a long time. So here's a quick rundown of damage to refresh your memory. As I mentioned in the opening, we find the Enterprise in the middle of battle with Zindi reptilians and the ship is near destruction. Most of the systems are offline. Trip's trying to get everyone to keep the shirt on, but unfortunately the warp engine is damaged beyond repair, and a few more blows would probably do the ship in. Of course, that can't happen because, well, we've got more season to go. So the crew is saved when the Zindi mysteriously retreat, and it turns out that the Council has recalled the ships without the consent of the reptilian leader Dolom. 
They have also sent an aquatic ship to transport Archer back to the Enterprise. Degra has included a hidden message for Archer in the escape pod that holds the captain, and the message includes instructions for a rendezvous, indicating that Archer has succeeded in getting through to Degra. Now, to get there, the Enterprise will need warp engines, and that's something that they no longer have, but fortunately, an alien ship contacts the Enterprise seeking help. And I have to say, guys, if if they looked at the Enterprise and thought, you know, those guys look like they're in great shape to help us, then they must have really had problems. But fortunately, they show up anyway. So the parts they need to repair the warp core are now within reach. But as it turns out, the alien captain will not barter for the parts and Archer must steal the warp coil from the alien ship. Along the way, we see two other key storylines take shape as cracks grow within the Zindi Council, and T'Pol reaches a breaking point with addiction to Trellium D, which she is using as a drug. And the episode concludes with the Enterprise setting off at warp to meet Degra. So there's a basic rundown of this story. And uh, let's jump into the conversation and start off with the cracks in the Council. And Matthew, you picked the episode today, so why don't you kick us off? Well, Chris, I just had to say, you know, rewatching the episode today... I don't think I've ever seen a Starfleet ship take such a beating right. and still be doing anything but exploding. I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, honestly, uh, whoever built the original Enterprise NX-01 built a fine ship because the fact that there are just, I mean, there's holes all over this ship. They've decompressed the entire decks. I They've lost 14 people. And the fact that this ship can still do anything is, is amazing i i I don't know how yeah i mean it must have been built by some british shipbuilders because yes british yeah goodness uh same guys that built the titanic um exactly yeah. yeah uh so but i mean just just that i just i had to acknowledge that it is insane the amount of damage this ship takes and actually is still yeah. functioning whatsoever i mean the one other case that i can think of would be voyager in europe hell but yeah, Voyager's a much bigger, more sophisticated, more advanced ship than the NX-01. Or the or the or Kirk's Enterprise. Yeah, Kirk's Enterprise in in the end of uh, Undiscovered Country gets pretty beat up. I mean, it you well, know Khan Khan gives his ship yeah, a and Khan gives his ship a, a beating too. But I mean, none of them look like this. Not like this. Uh, yeah. It's I mean, I think it's like it's crazy. If you think about older cars. From the 60s, for example, you know, they were built out of metal. They were sturdy. Modern cars are made of plastic. So it's sort of like that, you know, this back at the NX-01, that was built out of actual metal and it could take a beating. Well, uh, so are you saying that they built, you know, like the Enterprise, you know, A, B, C, Mm -hmm. bloody D out of like fiberglass? So, you know, that's that's why they can get... It's deuterium. No, it's plastic. You guys, you've got them in your room there, Matthew. You've oh, seen okay. the yeah. Playmates yeah, that's true. The ships, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like built by Korea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, so, so okay. I, I had to mention that just because I, I thought it was a just an amazing fact that this ship was functioning at all. But, you know, I picked this episode because there's just a lot of things that come to a head finally. You know, it's ending the season, you know, very close here for Enterprise Season 3. And and a lot of really important things happen. Um, And and one of them being uh, the fact that we're getting to kind of see the inner workings of the Zindi Council and how um, uh, what Archer has told them has actually created uh, 
you know, a schism between the, you know, the different races and obviously the reptilians not buying it at all. And the, the insectoids probably not really buying it, but everybody else is, is in a state of flux and, and Archer has found his way in. Uh, and I thought that that was um, something that's really interesting in this idea. You know, if you're going to have five different races with the Zindi um, and you're going to have a council made up to kind of run that, um, it's going to work very much like any kind of form of de- democratized government. You're going to have things where certain factions don't agree with each other. And, and for them, it's even more difficult because they're all on you know equal footing and they're all bringing something to the table. And, and uh, so... And we've seen, scarily enough, too, that, you know, the Zindi reptilians are willing to do their own thing when they think it's best. So um, just showing how dangerous this situation is for the Enterprise and her crew and just how uh, much they're up against, I thought, was really interesting. Because in some ways, it's a good thing that Archer's found his way in, and so, uh, but at the same time, it's also showing you how precarious this is. It could go seriously long for them any time. And they're they're really on the edge of the knife here in this episode. And uh, yeah, I mean, ships beat to hell and they Archers are... Archers beat to hell. Archers beat to hell. I mean, everybody's Archers pretty beat much to beat to hell. To Paul is with her addictions. I mean, it just, it, it, yeah. it doesn't... Reed's upset because he can't blow anything up. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, he's trying to blow out weapons on the ship and... Paul won't let him, so he's pissed. So I and it's just a it's just a really dark time for Enterprise, and and um, you know there's not a lot of hope in this episode at all. At least for Arkwelders. Well, that's true. And then the only and, and which was funny because I'm watching the episode, and the only like little tiny ray of hope was was Mayweather when the tiny little discussion he has with with right. uh, Hoshi about oh, the sure. fact that they are going to get home and 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 that idea that that there's still that kernel in 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 these human beings that they're going to make it somehow not in Hoshi though yeah not in face. Hoshi but uh in, at least in 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 Mayweather and and it, that's still driving you know um I think Archer and and the rest of the crew that they're not only is there a hope to get home, but that they actually will succeed. And so, um, I don't know. It's an interesting point though, Matt, with Mayweather because Mayweather would, would have been on, was born on a freighter. So they they have to, they have to constantly Wait, when did we find that out? I don't remember that. He's been in space before, you know. (laughs) And... Matthew has forgotten all of Travis's scenes since there were so few of them. Yeah, yeah. He's basically yeah. not Riker. He has one line. Riker says "red alert" in every episode, and Mayweather says "I've been in space before." You know, in every episode. Oh yeah, but, yeah. But Mayweather points out that they have right. to constantly fix the freighter, so he's used to working with a broken ship. So yeah, I think that's, that's true. That's, that gives him the optimism. You know, even in the episodes that don't take place in space, if they're on a planet the entire time, he still gets the line. They walk into a room and Tripp says, man, this, this room's real spacious. And Travis says, you know, I grew up in space. Yeah. And and if you look at the time, the, the two times he actually lands on the planet, he, he crashes the ship through the ground. <laughs> Not yeah. used to that gravity thing. No, he's no, no, he's not used to these solid stuff. <laughs> he lands on an asteroid, he goes through the ice. He lands on a planet, he goes through a sinkhole, you know? Yeah. Man. Stick to space. Not letting that guy fly my shuttlecraft ever again. No, no. Well, mind, mind you, you know, he might have been an ancestor of Troy. That's true. That's true. 
<laughs> well, talking about the cracks in the council and how everything could go wrong quickly for them, I think there are two ways to look at it. You can also you can look at it as that they're really at the mercy of this council, and you see the ship in this episode, and, and you feel like the fact that the fate of Earth relies on the success of this one little ship out here against all these odds is insane. But at the same time, the cracks in the council start, I, I see it as a glimmer of hope as well, because if they can't find the weapon, then th- their next course of action would be to dissuade the Zindi from using the weapon in the first place. And Archer has gone through hell to try to do that. And he's finally starting to reach some wine. So, the council being divided at least stalls and gives them more time because if if this hadn't happened, you know, we could be maybe one episode away from them actually launching the weapon. Whereas things get kind of stalled out. I know they're still building it and completing it, but the actual deployment of the weapon begins to get delayed by the fact that the council has this internal turmoil. It's also interesting. The council, the um, the, the two strongest factions in the council that are against it are, mamili- are to all intents and purposes, mammalian. Yeah. And the ones that are for it are the reptilians and insectoids, and basically the aquatics are in the middle. Which so I is, think that's interesting as well. Uh, which is interesting because I think everybody, you know, you watch through the season and you realize that it's the aquatics who are the most powerful, like military-wise. Their ships are the most powerful. They're the yeah. biggest. Mm. They're, the, they're the thing that everybody's uh, wants on their side. And so, whichever way they swing, you ha- you get the uh, the feeling when you're you're watching this episode and previous episodes that um, that that that's going to be you know where Enterprise. Um, uh, either succeeds or fails because of you know if they can get the aquatics on, on the on the right side and so um yeah you you were right chris you really do see just a little bit of hope um the fact that they want to meet with archer again in the first place the fact that you know they give them a secret meeting place to the, you know that's just the whole impetus of the episode we have to get to this meeting place or else it is gonna you know i mean it's it's going to go all to hell. I mean, the planet's going to get blown up and we'll be the last humans in existence. Um, except for the few out there on freighters like, uh, you know, Mayweather's parents. And so you you really do see what sets up that whole discussion we'll get to later of what does Archer do to get there, knowing that this right. could be the... This is the only... Ho- I mean, Obi-Wan, you are my, you're my only hope. Archer, this is his only hope. Um, and, and, uh, what do you do at that point? With the cracks in the council, do you guys see it as being, it's a combination, but what, what do you see as playing the biggest role? Is it Archer getting through to Degra? Is it the discomfort that the mammalian species have with maybe destroying other mammalian species? Is it the reptilians attitudes or is it the fact that the council outside of the reptilians anyway, have this growing distrust of the sphere builders and what their motives are. I, th- I think the arboreals is is, is also a factor uh, based on their previous encounters. Um, I think Diagra is obviously the linchpin, which is why Archer focuses on Diagra in incoming episodes. Um, but I, I think the arboreals are also 
a factor in this because everyone goes on about the aquatics and they take ages to make a decision and they're quite like deliberate in, in their thinking. But the arboreals seem to be very much uh, a pacifist species. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the one of the factors as well. Um, obviously, Daigra's problem is the fact that they literally have no proof. So being a scientist, right. he wants facts. Well, I think, I, I don't know, you get the feeling like that they they got shown some proof from the sphere builders, but they, they haven't really had an, a very equal relationship with the sphere builders at all. And, and the fact that the idea that, you know, uh, the expanse itself might be uh, something that, is responsible for these people. I mean, they even asked them the question, did you build the spheres? They didn't even mm-hmm. know this, you know, and, and to realize that their area of space is being destroyed basically by these sphere builders is a huge thing. And so if Archer can prove that, you know, he's got them on their side at that point, you know, so um, I, I really think it's not only that, um, you know, the morality of the Zindi the different Zindi species, but it's it's also the fact that you know nobody likes to be felt like they've been sold a bill of goods by somebody. They don't like being taken advantage of, and and so you you prove that your species, all of you, are being taken advantage of by another species who've been lying to you the whole time. They've just been using you. I mean, nobody wants that. Um, and, you know, even the reptilians, I don't think they don't want to be used like that. Uh, and if if they could open their whatever it is, their ears <laughs> to to hear. That they they could, I mean, they're they're shown as just being the stubborn ones, them and the the insectoids. Um, I don't know if that's a bit speciest, you know, to <laughs> Maybe. to say that. Oh yeah, I think it would have been actually more interesting. This is just for me, if it had been like the insectoids, the reptilians, and the arboreals, been the ones that were actually on Archer's side, and mm. had the other characters, because I think it would have not been so it's it, it's kind of like fantasy literature where you know elves are always yeah. good and dwarves are kind of usually the bad people you know or something like that like it's always more interesting when you turn something on its head and so by making the people that look like us be the good guys and the people who don't look like us the bad guys it was it was kind of like a cliche i would have been more interested to see them do it a different way but whatever you know it, yeah. it still plays out very well and and again i don't think anybody likes being taken advantage of especially by um somebody who could be using you actually for your own demise you're not seeing four dark world then matt oh i have it no no the elves in that are not nice yes thor thor the dark world yes the elves are bad there which is great because it it, it's a it's one of those things you don't really expect to have happen, um, you know, have the elves be the bad people, which is great. You no. know, it, it creates a sense of... Although I would like to point out that the dark elf who's bad is also played by an English guy. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Uh, so, AKA the doctor go. as well. So yes. he just yeah. really went bad time lord. Well, Colin, yeah, as, as a commercial that ran during the Super Bowl this year pointed out, all the bad guys are played by Brits because there's something <laughs> yeah. about the accent. They just sound evil. We were just saying, yeah. yeah. As as Evendish by Star Trek two point <laughs> five and Benedict Cumberbatch. Well, Matthew, you know, with the reptilians, I, I get the feeling with them that even if they knew they were being played by the sphere builders, 
they would go ahead and take the assistance thinking that once they had gained control of the Zindi themselves, then they would turn on the sphere builders. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that is, again, that, that's kind of just kind of a trope of having the like overconfident bad guy, you yeah. know, that they're, they're so wrapped up in their own awesomeness that they're, they think they can take on anyone. And, and that's the, always the demise of the bad guy is that they don't see it coming. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, you see it in Star Wars with the Sith. You see it in the Lord of the Rings with Sauron, you know, being, you know, obviously uh, short-sighted. He only mm-hmm. has one eye. Hint, hint. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you point. know, you get this and, and all the bad guys, they're overconfident in, right. in their abilities. And, and so uh, I think, you know, you get the um, the reptilians and you, and you get the insectoids and they just kind of represent that. I just kind of wish it hadn't been the guys that didn't look like us yeah. that were the bad guys it would have made it a little bit more interesting so it's basically pride before the fall exactly yeah i mean definite you know scriptural reference there which you know always proves true honestly and even as we look at the world so mm-hmm. what did you guys think about the spear builder woman actually appearing this is the first time that she shows up in the council chamber we do see her again in the council countdown and zero hour and what did you think about the introduction of like an actual physical manifestation here of these are the people who are helping the Zindi and who are playing them. And also just the design of them, because I still like, I was watching this again yesterday and I've been trying for years to kind of get over this and I still haven't managed to get over it that I think that the makeup work on the spear builders did a great disservice to the story because they look so much like the prophets and they look so much like the 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 race in the chase on TNG that like seeded all the oceans, but very much the prophets. And then you know another time here towards the end of, of this arc, they actually show them, and they're in that like white misty area, which is again making mm. me feel like it's they're in the prophets. But it it the first time this aired, it actually confused me. I was like, wait a minute, the prophets are involved in this somehow too. And even the way that she speaks, it's not the same actress. Now, this is is Josette DiCarlo who's playing this uh, Sphere Builder woman in Enterprise. But the way that she speaks and the intonations, it's like the female changeling in Deep Space Nine. And I just found the whole, everything from the writing to the acting to the makeup to be confusing. And and I think that it, for me, it kind of hurt the story by introducing this element. You know, it didn't it it didn't bother me. I thought what was most interesting about it that is if you're paying attention as the Zindi, these guys showing up to refute these claims to me mm-hmm. seems desperate. You know, like yeah. they are I mean, you know, thinking like a storyteller but also just kind of thinking along the lines of people being used. Anytime somebody has to come in and say, "No, no, 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 don't believe those guys. They're not telling you the truth." You know, like you automatically should get suspicious. Um, right. And, you know, it showed just how, to me how desperate they are getting to have this completed. And and I think it creates um, a- another impetus for the Zindi to, to, to not 
trust them. You know, yeah. all the well, Zindi species that already are on the fence with these guys are even more on the fence now as they are oh, yeah. hearing all this double talk. And I thought it actually is kind of needed for the story for them to kind yeah. of turn on who they've been trusting for the longest time. Now, whether or not they really work, you know, at visually and whatnot, yeah. I'm with you, Chris. They, you know, when they show their own realm, they look too much like the prophets. Yeah. Um, but well, I'm with otherwise, you with the story really angle. With like, I, I totally agree with you on the story angle. And that's why I feel like it hurts the story in the sense that if they're going to do that for the storytelling and, and raising the suspicion of the Zindi, that's great. And I think it's needed for the story. But do it in some way that it's unique. It's something new. It feels new to us mm-hmm. so that we can really place this as a different alien. I mean, like on Voyager, they had the species 8472 which was just completely something we've never seen before or the yeah. silver blades or something you know yeah something different and this was just so close it it almost felt like they were running out of ideas and um which i don't think is the case because if you look at the like the reptilian makeup i think is some right. of the best makeup ever done yeah. in star trek i mean the the eyes Puff and everything it's just fantastic and here mm-hmm. it just feels like they kind of got lazy with it and so it detracts for me from the story element that you're talking about which i do think is needed although the only thing i do have to say is that their uniform reminds me and it harkens back to that uniform that daniels is wearing when he pulls archer onto the enterprise j it kind of has that kind of feeling to it it it, it's kind of doing its that part to me is doing its job of kind of tying it into this kind of uh temporal cold Mm -hmm. war thing and Mm -hmm. that kind of deal but as of, I mean, I don't really have a problem with the makeup or anything like that. It to me, the the part that really is is when they start showing that that white ethereal place mm. that they are in, which it's like I I really think you need to not do Prophet Land, yeah, before the prophets we know about them, because um, yeah. it it just doesn't look great. It would have been much more exciting to me if if you know their space was was more like the expanse like that they could what if it maybe was just like, live in that space what if it was like in the little prince where he comes from a planet that's really really tiny and he goes to all these planets that are really really tiny and there's one person on the planet their realm is just made up of millions of tiny spheres and they each have to stand <laughs> on one sphere and then float around to talk to each other see that would have been unique in star trek <laughs> that would have been really funny <laughs> They do seem to be a matriarchal society, though, because when you do see them in their own realm, yeah. shall we say, they do seem to be predominantly female. Yeah, Riker is probably wishing that they had tried to take over space during the 24th century and that he had to go <laughs> to their realm and sort things out. Sort things yeah. out with air quotes, I should say. And show another royal community. <laughs> He'd just prop his leg up on, you know, some cloud or something. And really, <laughs> put his leg up on a sphere. Yeah, there you go. Just, <laughs> just, man, I, I don't know. Those, those, those women just might explode in that, that place. And it's like, no, I don't know what to do with this magnetism. Talk about creating an expanse. But it's the facial features to me reminded me of, of the, uh, the aquatics. Oh, really? If you... Yeah, when the aquatic oh. swims up to the window. I'll have to look at that like, again. I didn't really think about that. Yeah. Yeah, they do kind of have a little bit of a... A little uh, bit of the aquatic yeah. about them. So, um, you know, I, I, it, by creating the, the sphere builders and kind of bringing them into it, they're going to do... 
as uh, as much as they can later on too with bringing in the temporal cold war and that this is part of it and uh, yeah, you, you we, having we that to element the enterprise that's the size of a galaxy, right? Which is which is nice that they're actually <laughs> trying to tie together things that they've already had going, which I think is smart. You know, whether the execution and, and the follow through all yeah. works out perfectly, I, I don't think. You know, yeah, I, I don't think it, it it does the service that they want it to. But it, to me, at least, they're trying, and I, yeah. I think that's good. Well, let's shift gears and talk about T'Pol and the Trellium addiction, because for me, that is, where do you put this in the story? I mean, I put it, it's probably like the C story for me in here, but at the same time, it's kind of the most important thing for me in many ways about this episode, because this twist on Vulcan is very, very interesting to me, the fact that they would have a Vulcan who not only is starting to struggle with emotion, but then has become addicted to a drug. And the reason she's taking the drug is that it allows her to tap into the emotions in the first place. And after she experienced those, she wanted more. And then she goes to the extreme in this episode where she really almost dies trying to obtain more of this drug. And then she goes to her quarters. Yeah. And that whole device that she uses, I like that the trillium is like a black rock and she puts it in, and the way she she works the machine and all it it really has just a full on drug addiction feel to it. I, I think it's it's Star Trek doing what Star Trek does best, which is reflecting social issues. Um, and her addiction is akin to crack cocaine or meth. Yeah. Uh, where you've got to refine and you've got to manufacture it and you've got to heat it up and so on and so forth. And. Um, I think the way that they handled this particular storyline to to reflect drug addiction, which has never been tackled before in in such a way uh, in science fiction, their mind in Star Trek. Right. Um, I think that I think they did a really good job with the way that they handled the addiction, and I also think that the fact that she was quite prepared to kill herself in order to get her fix is is telling of how far she's fallen i mean when she's when she's in withdrawal symptoms and she's got the shakes which is again a classic thing with with drug addicts uh, and she's having hallucinations and fantasies i think it's interesting that her hallucination and fantasies involve trip yeah and i think that that for me was the thing that i really felt interesting about um this whole storyline is is that Enterprise was trying to explore Vulcans, one, for really the first time. I mean, we had seen Spock, but unfortunately, like, Spock has never really explored yeah. all that deeply. And neither are Vulcans themselves. And, and he's half so human Enterprise, in the first place. Exactly. Uh, and so Enterprise shows us Vulcans um, before that time period. And it also shows us the the first Vulcan who really full Vulcan who spends a lot of time with humans and the effect that this desire for uh, you know one relationship with them and um, this desire for emotion comes out um, because as we know Vulcans have even stronger emotions than humans and so being around humans enough you know to Paul says one of the reasons she wanted to do this is because her interaction with the crew got better. And it and, and he says, you know, Phlox brings up the fact that it's Trip, really, that she's having better interaction with. Mm -hmm. um, interaction, quote unquote. Um, 
But I, I also think that it's just the crew in general. Like she's able to understand and relate better to her crew members and the difficulty of being the only Vulcan and, and, and really good to explore that. And I thought was, was actually pretty brilliant, you know, and it gave, you know, um, Jolene Blaylock something great to do on the show. And I think she acts her heart out in the episode and throughout the season and does a really fantastic job of watching this kind of woman descend into madness um and i really appreciate them them doing that for the character for vulcans and just helping us see something different and really the struggle that it is to be a full-on vulcan and these emotions that are under the surface that they try to suppress and are having to have them come back out and it to me it was a great way for them to hopefully go forward and obviously she's doing this because she wants to connect with trip better and really explore that relationship and then as course as we know in the fourth season so it's just unfortunate that we never really get the resolution to something that they had been building for so long i mean they're like the ross and rachel of star trek we just never really get to see the full resolution as it should have been on the show for them, which is really sad because they had created a very interesting relationship. And I think one that a lot of fans and me personally uh, liked, I would have just liked to have seen them come to some sort of conclusion, especially as they got into the fourth season and knew that was going to end. So do you feel that the whole relationship with Trip would never have happened if she had not become addicted to Trillium? I don't think so. I, I think that, they had set up, obviously, that um, they were attracted to each other. But she had to know, act and, on it. And it feels like tapping into these emotions is what allowed her to act on it. Otherwise, she would have been like, like Matthew, the, the Spock Reflection comic that we just yeah. did on Literary Treks, where we see that scene from the motion picture era where Spock encounters Chapel and has that uneasy moment because he never, ever acted on any feelings. In the yeah. early episodes, that I was setting up archer and to Paul. yeah they were but luckily they and then it, and then it kind of went into trip and to Paul. yeah well you know they 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 do both you know if you watch the, the the first season they have the episode where she gets the letter that trip has had you know and he's mm. read and the, and the fact that they they begin to build a relationship there between her and trip they you know they have this kind of awkwardness between her and archer but you know it's i i personally didn't ever feel like it was going to go anywhere in the moment they had that whole scene with her and trip i felt like okay this is going to go somewhere with these two because it can you know you mm -hmm. you can't have the captain and his his first officer having a relationship it just doesn't work on a show um but you can do the the engineer no, rock and picard would never work <laughs> yeah it just would not have worked at all no. um so it it, it would have um it, it just wouldn't have worked there but so i i felt like those two could have gotten together even if you didn't have the trillium i it probably would have just taken longer you know i think that uh mm. the trillium kind of accelerates the relationship do you think they started in impulse then Matt, when she first got exposed to it in impulse the acceleration of her desire to be with trip yeah. or or just um no just awakening of of them feelings no i think they were already there um I mean, you watch through, I think, season one, they get closer in season two, and then season three happens, and I think a, a little bit like somebody who's drunk, 
is kind of free to do things that they might not normally mm. do. Yeah. If she just becomes freer than she would have been. And, and again, I think it just was something that would have taken a lot longer if, if she hadn't had that kind of freedom, I guess, and, and again, in quotes, cause it's not real freedom, but that kind of comes with, you know, an, an addiction to a substance that kind of opens up new doors for her. Mm. Um, Lowers your inhibition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. What did you think about the way Flocks handled the situation? You know, one thing I liked at the end was that he told T'Pol that, well, T'Pol realizes that just because she stops taking it, you know, these symptoms that she's having aren't going to go away. And Flocks just tells her flat out, basically, you know, it's going to take a long time. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have to learn to deal with this. Whereas I feel like in past Star Trek, you would have taken a hypospray and then everything would have cleared up. <laughs> You're cured. You would have been back to normal again. I think I think Flux in this episode was was brilliant because he had to deal with T'Pol. He had to deal with Archer. At the same time, he's, he's, he's treating half the crew in sickbay and in various corridors and so on and so forth, which is a bit like the NHS, but still. Um, and I think that, that Flux... Because he's in, he's he's basically in two plots out of three, and and I think the way that he handles each each person on a one to one basis and he each situation on a one to one basis is a credit to Flux. It's obviously it's a credit to the acting as well, but it's a credit to Flux that he can just go with Archer and deal with the moral compass of Archer, and then he can go to to Paul and deal with the drug addiction. And I think I think it's a testament to him as a doctor that he can do that. And he didn't have to get his salt shaker out. I think the the way that he deals with T'Pol too is is very much like you would get a a counselor and or doctor dealing with somebody who's going through yeah. something very difficult, and and mm. the way that he handles it is is done with such care. And he, she's able to come to him. She's able to tell him what's happened. He doesn't he doesn't judge her. He doesn't make her feel more guilty than she should. Um, but he also doesn't uh, you know sugarcoat the the issues that are involved now because of her choices um and he does it all very lovingly in, in the way that you would hope not only a friend would but it, you know obviously her doctor as well and i think mm. he handles it very well specifically this this deal with with to paul and, and giving her a place to come that's safe you know and i think that's really important in, in the same way that you know you brought up Colin, he does with Archer and Archer is safe to talk about this kind of issue with, um, uh, you know, the doctor and, and, and bring this up and say, have you ever done anything that's unethical? You know? And, and, um, I love that they have that discussion because, you know, you, you see flocks having to, to say, well, yes, twice, you know, yeah. I, I have so had we learn to make about this flux as well. Exactly. Right. I have had to make this kind of call before, and and so I it really I, I think this um, this episode and in just the third season in general, really digging into these characters and who they are and dealing with these kind of issues in this kind of way. It's just, you know, you get into the nitty gritty of this episode, just really good writing. Yeah. Um, looking at the, you know, the the idiosyncrasies of the characters and how they would react and all that. It's really fantastic. And, and so um, for me, I. I I always have trouble with people not really liking season three because I feel like it 
if it doesn't all work yeah. for you, I can understand that part. But at least what they're doing with the characters and moving the series forward and trying something really new, um, it, it, they're they're really doing a good job, I think, in that. Well, and yeah. it's interesting that you raised the writing because this this was written by Philly Strong, who went on to become head writer. So you know, it's it's interesting that you raised the writing, the strong writing aspect, because obviously they was impressed by it because yeah. they made a head writer in it. Well, as I tell people with season three, like I, I can see when it was when it was first on when it was airing, I can see people having trouble getting into it. I tell people now, you know, go to Netflix or get the DVDs or get the Blu-rays and watch this season as quickly as you can. Just go watch straight through because then you see the pieces fall together. And, and an episode like Damage here, which picks up where the last one left off and then leaves us hanging as they're going to go into the next part of the story as well. You, you, it really benefits from this quick watching where you're, instead of thinking of them as episodes, think of it as, as chapters of a story. And like, if you're reading a book, you're going to just go straight into that next chapter and just keep going and going. So it works a lot better in that sense. This also ties into impulse and as anti-prime as well. Right, it does go back to yeah to past as well. So let's talk about Archer a bit more as we were talking about him and his discussion with Phlox. And, you know, the key in this episode is the action that he takes. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about what's led Archer up to this point. You know, that what he's been through. He, at the start of the series, he's the explorer. He's ready to go out there. We know after this arc, when he goes back home, he's really having trouble with the fact that, you know, his whole vision of what it would be to go out in this warp five ship and explore has been shattered by the realities of life in the galaxy. But in terms of what leads up to this point where he's talking to Flux about that, have you ever made an unethical decision? How do you see Archer's evolution in, in this whole arc? This, this to me was, was Archer's, uh, pale moonlight yeah which that was matthew that was your same thought as well right yeah as we said in the other side of the room the other side of the room that was my thought for sure so because it's that that like being pushed up against the wall right and you you have to make a decision you don't want to make and i think you also reminded me of of picard with the book Mm. with uh with hugh Oh yeah, with Hugh. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Mm, that's a good point. It, it's you know I think one of the things that's so interesting is is to watch um, you know Archer go from this uh, you know wide eyed explorer, somebody who's quite naive into the you know the workings of the universe, um, and you know to kind of come into this situation, you know. I, Enterprise has been through a lot in the first two seasons, you know, running into Klingons and and all sorts of alien races. You know, I I think of fight or flight where they they run into this horror ship, you know, like that's your second outing. (laughs) Um, It's just you. But that, you know, you run into a ship where people are having their organs pumped and turned into some sort of weirdness. It's disturbing. (laughs) Yes, Matthew just said people were having their organs pumped. On an alien yeah. ship. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> we'll just yeah. cut that from the episode. Back to the uh, welcome maneuver. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, you know, so uh, Archer has has seen a lot and been through a lot, and and you get to this season, and everything is is just been pushed the limit. You know, uh, the limits of of a human being. Uh, you know, nobody has ever been in the situation that he's been in at this moment, and if if ever somebody has felt like atlas it is archer because the entire world is on his shoulders yeah. um and, and that is the weight that he feels and it's crushing him but at the same time what i love about the conversation that he has with flocks and he will then have with to paul is that he is not going into this blindly at all um he is going in it with eyes wide open he is making decision um, with his eyes open um, and his heart open, knowing that this is not the decision that he wants to make, but he feels like he has to make because there's no other choice because it's the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or it's annihilation for his people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what do you choose there? And watching him have to come to this point after, you know, being this kind of like, naive wide-eyed wanderer (laughs) of the stars it is such a great journey for him and it it it, it actually it's having us make us ask the question like what what would we do you know in this situation Mm -hmm. like when is too far too far you know um when is our morality and and whatnot like um something that that we we can put aside and and do the wrong thing for the right reasons, you know, it's a tough call, but it's a great episode for that. Just like in the pale moonlight asking that question, you know, do I, do I sacrifice Mm -hmm. a few? And, 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 and even Archer here, he luckily doesn't have the, the, the same problem. I think that necessarily Cisco has, because he's not condemning these people to death per se there. He doesn't know that, that they're going to die. Um, you know, they could, they could, make it back home you never know but the reality of the situation is he's probably is and so i don't know that's that's tough you've also got to remember that the arch is operating without um anything resembling the prime directive or anything like that right so he's literally um he's the one who's making the decisions because he's got no guidelines which is more interesting right because with the prime directive you can always look and say, well, the decision's been made for me already. This is our mm-hmm. guideline of how we operate. But you know, we don't have that benefit as people. I mean, we, we have we have guidelines of what within our culture is considered ethical or not, but it's not the same thing as the prime directive in Starfleet, where this organization that you work for is telling you, like, you can't do this in this situation or else you're gonna be court martialed. You know, we have to actually decide for ourselves what is acceptable or not. And then Archer is much more in that situation here. Yeah. It's it's interesting the exchange that he has is with Topol and I liked it so much I wrote it down. Um and Archer says, We're not gonna make a habit out of it and Topol counters with once you rationalise the first misstep, it's easy to fall into a pattern. Yes. And I thought that was an interesting analogy because she's basically countermanding him with emotional arguments. Mm-hmm. Well, not only that, what I also found interesting that she said to him is she said, we can't save humanity without holding on to what makes us human, which I thought was a very interesting mm. statement to come from to Paul. 
because which she's yeah. speaking of herself as if she's human at this point. Well, but that she says, you told me this. And yeah. so she's throwing Archer's words back in his face. And, and, yeah. Yeah. and, and I think that was a really strong thing for her to do to say, look, you told me this. You're, you're the one who's been teaching me about what it means to be human. And, and now you're showing me that you'll just basically do whatever you need to do to get the job done. Um, and again, I think that's what made Archer's next statement so awesome. And I'm not rationalizing anything. I know full well what I'm doing. Yeah. Like he, he understands the ethical ramifications that he's taking. He knows what's going to weigh on his conscience now. You know, I think that this is what made the episode home so good. We did that uh, months back, Chris. And I think that that's what makes that episode great is that Archer still has this weighing on him at that point, you know, and it will continue to kind of weigh on him for, I think, a long time. Well, he says he's not rationalizing anything, but in a way, I mean, he is rationalizing. And you said earlier, Matthew, that maybe they'll get home. We don't know. I mean, he is saying that, well, okay, I'm going to give them three containers of Trellium D and some food and some supplies and I'm going to steal the warp coil from their ship and strand them here. Maybe they'll get back. Maybe they won't. I mean, he is rationalizing his decision by setting up a scenario where maybe they won't die. Mm. I, d- I doubt very much he gave them three years' supply of food and water. Right. Well, he couldn't. I mean, they don't yeah. have that available. And, and that also plays into to to basically near the end of the episode when Trip says to him, "You did the right thing." And he says, I have to keep telling myself that. Yeah. The longer we're out here, the more I have to keep telling myself that. So he, to, that to me tells me that he's lost a bit of himself. He's lost a bit of his humanity. And he's now in a bit, like, like Matt says, do the ends justify the means? Well, and I think uh, that's the the great question that you end up with, you know, the Vulcans and their famous statement of the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one and how logic can be used to rationalize anything at this point. Because, you know, if if that's the case, then Archer is making the right decision because this was one tiny ship with, you know, 20 people on it are nothing compared to the billions of people that are on planet Earth that, that yeah. um, Archer is trying to save. I mean, he's made mm. the right choice logically. But, you know, morality is is what sets apart those who are good and bad, you know, and, and we can all see that in, in Archer's decision here, whether it's, it's, um, the logical one doesn't necessarily make it the right one or does it? I, I don't know, you know? Well, it's, so. it's interesting you make the analogy about right or wrong, because when we, when you have the episode shipment, uh, where Reed wants to do an orbital bombardment of the sites and Archer says, no, we'll beam down and talk to him. Mm-hmm. that's his humanity coming through let's not right. just go in all guns blazing and kill them and then you 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 move forward a few episodes and you're at this point now where the same guy who did not want to kill the arboreals um, and he wanted to let them walk in the trees and stuff like that now he's quite happy to you know theoretically kill an entire crew of another starship by condemning them to a three-year journey they may or may not make i mean for all he knows a couple of weeks down the line, they could have got ripped apart by one of the anomalies. Yeah, I don't think he's... He really doesn't want to do this, I think, but he's just in... He has no other choice. I, I see it that way, that 
it is the the fate of an entire planet versus the possible fate of a ship, one ship. And I, I think most of us in that situation, I mean, if we were in that situation and the, the entire fate of Earth itself was hanging in the balance, you, you really have no choice but to make that decision. When I was watching the first, um, when they first met the species, you know, Casey Briggs, um, I was thinking if that was Kirk, he'd have took it there and then. You think? Yeah, because Kirk knows what's on the line. He wouldn't have. He would have said, "Look, I need your warp core. You know, we're going to take it." He wouldn't have. You know, not had the moral dilemma. You know who would really have taken it? Be Ca- Captain Ransom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it- yeah, yeah. Picard would have had a staff meeting. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. Jordy <laughs> would have done a PowerPoint about how they could extract the warp coil in five easy steps. Yes. Yeah, it, it it's funny because I was, I um I've been watching through uh season five of the Clone Wars and they always have these little like uh, fortune cookie things before the episode and the one that I watched before I watched the Enterprise episode today was uh, morality separates heroes from villains and I thought how applicable that is to the episode that we're watching with Archer and his decision in in that. He is going against everything that he believes in, his morality, um, for the greater good in, in, in the sense that the ends have to justify the means at this point. Um, and it does create a conundrum, and I, I honestly don't know what the answer is. You know, my thought, the only other thought I could think was, why not... Um, you know, take the warp coil from those people, but also bring them aboard Enterprise and at least give them a chance to, yeah, you know, live that way. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and say, hey, look, well, why don't you just come with us? I, I don't know. That's the only other option I think that Archer would have had. And if they hadn't have gone for that, then you would have had to take it anyway. You know, he really doesn't have a lot of good options. And when you when you watch the rest of the series, it at least it shows that Archer made the decision that he had to make to save earth right yeah. whether it's right or wrong is 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 it's still probably wrong but he he did what he had to do to save earth and at that point trip's saying if you did the right thing it well not really the right thing but the thing you did the thing that's going to save the thing you had to do our planet yeah which is, which also ties in which has just popped into my head is, is another ds9 episode where um Cisco gets the the profits to make all the Jem'Hadar ships disappear because he felt that's what he had to do no matter what and they they said there will be a price to pay and he says basically he says I'll pay it you know we can't let these ships through right so you know it it does pop up in other incarnations of Star Trek that these big decisions where you know for all Cisco knows them them 2,800 people on them ships got killed but he felt he had to do that. Except in that case, yeah. he knows that, first of all, the people who are being killed on those ships are the enemy in the war. They're also like life forms that are just bred to fight in the first place. I, they're, they're very different from the Illyrians in this episode. Yeah, but I mean, the moral context. Yeah. 
you know, but then again, Cisco crossed the line as we, as you know, we've already mentioned anyway. So yeah, at least he didn't order General Order Twenty Four, which is what Kirk did. Well, and and I, I I'll say this too on on that point. You know, obviously, those Jem'Hadar are going to be killed in the war, regardless. Like if Cisco had had another way to destroy them without the profits, he would have used it. You know, and he's he's using every means net. Um, at his disposal to do the job that he has, which is to destroy the enemy in a time of war. Um, so I don't. You've, I don't also, you've also got Picard in first contact, yeah. where he quite happily throws his crew at the Borg. Mm-hmm. And, well, and you know, yeah, you have Picard who you know shoots one of his old ex crew members right. who is yeah, a Borg, and then, and then rips his to take a neural processor, which yeah. a, you know it it's a it's another one of those situations though of of Picard, at that point, being pushed up against the wall, yeah. and does he let you know humanity and its entire future be destroyed because they won't do what needs to be done to take care of the Borg here? You know, it, it's a, the same kind of conundrum, and these captains keep having to face them over and over again. Yeah. I'm just glad I don't have to do it. That's why they sit in the big chair. That's right. That's why they're paying the big bucks. Yeah. The <laughs> other interesting twist here is that within the Zindi arc. In the second episode, Anomaly, the Osarians board the Enterprise and start stealing things, and they steal antimatter injectors. And so here towards the end, Archer becomes the Osarians himself. He has to do the same mm. thing, boarding another ship, stealing a warp coil. Yeah. The warp, well, and, the warp and, coil, which looked amazing, like the warp coil in The Defiant. <laughs> well, you know... It probably was the same one, honestly, just redressed. <laughs> I'm just thinking how easy or nice it would have been, you know, if you had just had, I mean, if you're going to have a temporal cold war, you know, you should really get a time Lord involved and how much easier this would have been. Uh, you know, (laughs) seriously, just, just call up, uh, you you know, just, yeah, yeah, just bring up Karen, you know? Yeah, exactly. Just call time Lord in with uh, his TARDIS and they could, you could easily fix this, you know, and that fixes the map maneuver. So yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, I think we can debate Archer's decision forever, you know, whether it was was yeah, right or wrong, because it's it's just an untenable position that he was in. And no matter, you know, stealing the warp coil obviously weighs on him and, and none of us would ever want to strand someone in that way. But at the same time, what are you going to do? I mean, you can't say, hey, you guys just go on your way and I'll let my entire planet die. Maybe I'll find a warp coil floating in space or something, you know, before my ship blows up. I don't know. So you can't really uh, do anything there. But you do have another DS9 link in here that you haven't meant, that we've kind of mentioned, which is Casey Biggs. Yeah. Which was so obvious the moment that he first held the ship. It's like, oh, the, yeah. the Mars is here in the expanse. <laughs> so. Well, and uh, I, do, I do at least like, and I think that this might at least just kind of wrap up this, this part is you know i love when when they have that conversation you know him and the captain and and he says why are you doing this and and the the look on scott bacula's face uh and the way he delivers the line because i have no choice Mm. is is just fantastic and i think you you really can't say enough about how great uh, Scott Bakulo, I think, was in this role yeah. in the way he was able to embody these different versions of Archer and really give us the pain of a man doing something he detests 
for the greater good of his yeah. people yeah. and um just a really well done job by scott bakula at, at star trek london someone asked uh, scott bakula in his talk who else was up for the role and he said no one yeah no one yeah it was he it was, was all along. well i remember when they were developing enterprise and you know everything i heard and everything i read was that this was developed for Scott Bakula. I mean, there was not like, yeah. here's Captain Archer, who can we get to play it? It's like, we want Scott Bakula to be lead in this series. And Captain Archer is Scott Bakula. I had never, ever heard of any other uh, thing going on but that. I'm, I'm fair play for him because that yeah. that's a real good casting call. Yeah. Well, Colin, you mentioned DS9. There's, there's, well, there are a couple of DS9 connections in this episode, but there's one kind of big one here. Dolem, the reptilian on the Zindi Council. You know who he was in DS9? I hear crickets. Tosk. Tosk. He was Tosk, yes. That's right. I had to dig deep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's wrap up with final thoughts and rating here. Colin, do you have any final thoughts on the episode and what's your rating? Yeah, I I personally think there's some stunning performances in here. Um, I, all, all the principal cast played the hearts out, but the, obviously the stunning performances are Flux, T'Pol and Archer. Um, and it's, you know, I, I feel sorry for Scott Bakula. He seems to get beat up in nearly every episode of Enterprise. But uh, he got particularly beat up in this one. But you also had my least favorite Zindi in, which is the Aquatics, because they just don't make any sense to me. <laughs> I like that their ship has food. like an area of no water in it where they can put yeah, people. Yeah, just in case you have visitors, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that just makes sense when all the rest of your people, or at least your species yeah. they are related to, Breathe air, but, you know. I, but wouldn't you feel yeah. kind of like you're visiting an aquarium in that case? Wouldn't as as the aquatics? Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't you and feel also, like you're what, on display? The bit that made me laugh. Yeah, the bit that made me laugh it, is, is yeah, when people the, go to an aquarium, they tap the glass <laughs> yes, at the, an aquarium, the, the, and that's what Archer does. He taps the glass. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's funny because the aquatics on the other side probably feel the same thing about you. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Although it was interesting seeing the inside of their ship and. Where I presume is their food in the water, because it looked like krill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I presume that's what they feed on. But yeah, but the, as I mean, we did uh, evolution in the war five so Chris. So you know, yeah. go and listen to that, folks, and you can hear my views on the aquatics. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the performances were stunning, um, and I just think it's 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 a great character opening up for Archer and it does play into everything that comes after this point. It's it's affected by this particular episode in this particular story arc and the whole of season three from this point onward just racks up and it just gets it gets more and more tense and more and more goes on and it gets more and more action packed. So it, it's a telling point for season three. Um but I, I I personally I love this episode. I think it's a really good episode, and I think it's a very good pick, Matt. Well done. Hats off to Thank you. you. It, Thank yeah, you. Thank you very much. Been playing with your blue box, you picked a good episode. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm going to give it nine, not Tardises. Okay. <laughs> good. Oh, I like that. How about you, Matthew? Well, uh, Chris, you know, I just I have to say, rewatching the episode and and uh, haven't gotten a, 
a lot of chance to rewatch um, Enterprise on Blu-ray, even though I have them now, all three seasons. And I got to say, this looks fantastic. One, uh, just a really well done job of creating it on on Blu-ray and, and giving us that high def experience. So great there. Um, I, I do think this is a fantastic episode, giving us um, background on a lot of great characters. Um, you know, really digging into who Phlox is, to Paul is, Archer is. I love the tiny scene with Mayweather and um, uh, Hoshi. I thought that that was actually really well done. Um, just that small, tiny little scene. And even just the way that the crew is kind of looking at each other as Archer is telling them the plan. Yeah. And that they're so uncomfortable with what they're about to do. And yet none of them have a better idea. And they know that there isn't one. And, and so... I think it's just a fantastic episode. We we talk about Archer struggling with this decision, but all of them, I think, have to struggle with this decision. Yeah. Um, and uh, then coming to terms with uh, to Paul and her Trillium D, I, I was thankful at this point in the season when they kind of put that to an end. You know that that she had come forward with with Flock. She had admitted what she had been doing, and that they were going to kind of bring her out of that. You know, I, I think we had had enough of it by this point. But I felt like it was a really well done storyline as we talked about there. Um, and so all in all, I think that this is just a really great episode in season three. I think that this is the point. I remember watching the episode before this and then the next week watching Damage and thinking, man, Enterprise is fantastic. You know, just they are knocking it out of the park um, at this point of the season, I thought, uh, originally. And I still think that now. And so uh, all in all, I'd, I'd rate this um Nine and a half to Paul PJ sets. <laughs> All right. Very good. Um, yeah. Well, when you mentioned this episode, you know, we, we we had a few ideas what we might do. And so I went and I watched all the ideas to, to see what we would pull out of it and realized just how jam-packed this episode is with uh, important character moments and all that we've discussed today. And... I was about to say that to really get the benefit of this episode, you do need to go back and you need to watch the arc through because it does, you know, pick up in the middle of action and it leaves us with stuff too. But, but actually there, there's a lot of good stuff that you can get from this episode just from watching it as a standalone as well. So it's a, it's a very good watch. I do encourage you though, especially if you thought you didn't like this indie arc, go watch it straight through really quickly. So I, I guess picking up on your rating, Matthew, I'm going to give this episode nine zombies in a shower. <laughs> well, you know, the great thing about this, Chris, is that if you watch the episode two, the NX-01 literally does a barrel roll in space. Like as it's being shot. Yeah. So, I mean, that alone is fantastic. Absolutely. All right. Well, Colin, thanks so much for staying up in the, to the wee hours of the morning over there in England for us. It's a pleasure. It's uh, it's always fun doing the ready room. Yeah. I wish we could have you on more often. These time zones are just so difficult to deal with. But before we go, tell everyone where they can find you online and what else you're doing on the network and whatever you want to tell us about. Uh, well, you, you can find uh, my newest podcast, which is now on episode four, which is Melodic Treks on the Trek FM network. You can find that on Trek FM and on iTunes. Uh, we'll be delving into the music of Star Trek. Um, and so far, we've done Picard's flute music, the Klingon battle music, 
the original series music and we had our first guest on uh, which was Rick Meyer this week where he picks his favorite five I'm waiting for your Diddy Off episode where you compare Riker's Diddies and Cisco's Diddies. You know, they like to sing when they're cooking. So. <laughs> uh, I was, I did try and, I did have an idea about doing Riker's trombone playing, <laughs> but uh, there's there's not enough of it. There's just not enough of it to justify yeah, it. So. Really. So, does that, the only one when he plays it of any significance is when Minuet's in it. So yeah. that's not enough of it, but hey. You could always do one wedding and bring it in the Riker manoeuvre. That'd be an idea. But uh, yeah, and Trek News Views is obviously he's still on the servers. So mm-hmm. if you want to delve into that for... Um, still quite popular too. 100. It still gets a lot of downloads, even though there have been no new episodes since when? October? Is that when episode October 100 last was? Year, yeah. 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 And the funny thing is the Twitter account is still growing as well. Yeah. <laughs> So, so obviously people like track news and views. So, and I do, I do still get emails asking me to bring it back. So, hey, never say never. But, uh, but yeah, I'm focusing on my other tracks at the moment. So you can find me on there, and you can find me on Twitter and Google at uh, c o o m h zero one. Excellent. So you're one of those few people who use Google Plus. Yeah, there's me and three others, I think. So. <laughs> it's a very intimate setting, isn't it? It's very intimate, yeah. <laughs> so I think we're the three people that aren't on Facebook. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Well, thanks again for joining us, Colin. Thanks very much. Well, Chris, that was a great conversation that we had there with Colin. It was It's a lot of fun to, to get to be on the show with him. I know with our different time zones, it can get super crazy. Um, he's up late, you're up early, I'm somewhere in the middle. It's like a time sandwich. Um, but uh, watching Damage today, I was just reminded of how much I really like uh, season three of Enterprise and, and just blown away by how good it looks on Blu-ray. So oh, yeah. I'm really glad that we, we got to talk about this episode. Yeah, it really does look fantastic on Blu-ray. Absolutely. Yeah, it was good. I'm glad Colin could join us. I I, I always want to have him on the ready room. It's so hard to coordinate these time zones. So I'm um, really thank Colin for staying up. We were able to move things up earlier than usual for us, but it's still 1 a.m. for him when we started. So so, but that's why he's the supreme commander of Trek of Film Europe. He does these things. Well, damage was great to talk about today, Matthew, but it's not the only thing we've been talking about on the network this week. So here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. I like aliens. They took a semester of philosophy in, in college when they were on Earth, and then they were like, yeah, we're Plato's stepchildren. And then, you know, later, it, the name just stuck. Earl Grey. First contact. Riker says, okay, they're they're ready to fire. And he pauses. <laughs> yeah. And in that moment, you see a little ship. There's another Jennifer Sisko somewhere <laughs> in my ship, for sure. <laughs> the ready room. If this statement was correct, it would suggest that the crew of the Prometheus modified the interior of the ship to reflect the new registry number before the old one was changed on the hull. Oh my god. <sighs> really? The orb. Penumbra. I think some people might not like it, but every time I watch the end series here, I really can't wait for me to just go, next one, yeah. next one, 
to the journey. Galaxians. Yeah, I would love to have seen Neelix on Earth too, just for the very reason. Like, he has all these wonderful ideas. I have this vision of him being like the Rachel Ray of Earth, and <laughs> he's gonna have a cooking show. Commentary Trek Stars. The Dresden Files. I couldn't even do a Chicago accent if I wanted to. You're like wearing half the gear. I yeah. know. I'm, I'm wearing a Bears jersey right now in Chicago. And I could not it's do... the football season. Football season's over. I the could Super not Bowl do two weeks ago. a Chicago accent to save my life. Warp 5. The Borg on Enterprise. Not to mention in the movie, right? Oh, here's what we'll do. The movie's pretty much over. It was two and a half hours long, but let's put another 15 minutes of cleaning up the Borg in there right at the end. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Melodic Treks. Five musical favorites. And to see the Klingon ship dissolve in in the lightning effect, with that music playing, at you know at loud volumes, it was it was basically the a geek's dream. Literary treks. Spock reflections. And my favorite is when Amanda goes, "I will never get used to a Vulcan scolding." <laughs> right. You know, we wouldn't take it as a scolding at all. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week. And some days we even have two shows. And you'll find them in a variety of places, including on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox Zoom. Or you can download or stream from the website. So just visit Trek.fm slash PD for podcast directory. Grab some shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. All right. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us on the episode today, you can do that by going to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Just choose to send to the ready room and that will come to us by email. If you have questions from the fleet for us, anything about Star Trek you want us to talk about during the news segment, you can send that to us using that form as well. Just choose the option for questions from the fleet and send us your questions because we'd love to talk about uh, those topics you can also send us a voicemail through the website, or you can go to our forums at trek.fm slash forums to talk to us and other listeners about the show and about Star Trek. And in social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And you'll also find us on Twitter under username trek.fm. And I'll also mention if you enjoy the show and you'd like to drop by iTunes and leave us a star rating and a written review, we'd love to hear from you. It does help other fans find the show as they search iTunes for Star Trek podcasts. So please drop by and let us know what you think about the show there as well. All right, Matthew, when you're not trying to figure out which of T'Pol's PJ sets is your favorite, where can people find you? Well, Chris, uh, you can find me on Twitter, obviously, at MattRushing02. Tweet about all sorts of different things. uh, So just give me an at reply. Let me know you're following me. We'll have a great conversation about whatever comes to mind, whether it's uh, obviously DePaul and her PJ pants or, uh, you know, um, something a little more substantial. Um, You can also find me doing The Orb, where we talk Deep Space Nine uh, with Chris uh, every week or... Literary Treks, where we talk the books and comics of Star Trek, and so uh, either of those places, you can you can also look me up as well. And then I do have my own personal blog, which is 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com, where you can find me and check uh, out all sorts of different things that I write about there as well. And so... Now, Chris, when you're not worrying about uh, whether or not it's it's ethical to love Leffler so much, <laughs> uh, where can we find you? What would be unethical about that? 
I, t- I don't know. <laughs> I'm just asking. In fact, I think you have to. I think that's one of her laws. You're, you're required. That's to probably, probably true. Well, when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, as well as on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then besides doing the Orb and Literary Treks with you, Matthew, you can find me on Warp 5, where we talk exclusively about Enterprise. So if you enjoyed this show today, pick up Warp 5. Come check us out over there. We talk about nothing but Enterprise. We have great guests on there as well. And besides that, you'll find me on my interview show, Matterstream. So check out all of those. Before we let you go, we'd like to remind you about our sponsor for today's show, and that's audible.com. Audible helps us bring the ready room to you every week, and you can help us keep that going as well by signing up for Audible. Now, to find out if you like Audible or not, you can get a free trial. That's at audibletrial.com slash trekafilm. And when you do that, you can choose an audiobook absolutely free. So anything you want to read, whether it's Peter David's New Frontier, which we talked about in news today, or a great new release that you've just seen in the bookstore, but you don't have time to read and print, you can get that at Audible as well. And if you decide not to stick with Audible after your trial, you get to keep that audiobook. So there's nothing to lose. So give it a try today. Go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm and sign up. And we really thank Audible for supporting the Ready Room and the network. There's one more thing you can do to help us keep the Ready Room coming to you every week, and that is to make a donation to the network. Now, these shows are free for you to download, but they're not free for us to produce. We have to pay for the cost of production, hosting, bandwidth, which is quite substantial with the number of listeners that we have. And so any assistance that you want to give us at the network is always appreciated. And as a thank you for your contributions, we have original alien illustrations for you. These are done by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. They're available as badges or art prints, and you can mix and match. You can choose what you want in which format, and we'll get those over to you. And uh, we have actually been asked this question recently by a number of people who asked, can I make a donation without getting the badges and art prints because they just want to contribute to the network and they don't really uh, need the artwork. You can do that too if you'd like to do that. Either way, go over to trek.fm slash donate. Choose which contribution level is right for you. And we really, really do thank you for your help and support in keeping the network going. All right, Matthew. Well, I'm going to wander down to sickbay and see if Phlox is there. You know, I've got this problem. I've become addicted to a, it's not Trellium D, it's another D, Dr. Pepper. And I'm wondering if he might have some advice for me. Chris, that sounds like an excellent idea. Dr. Pepper can be very addictive. And I think it's time to stick a damaged morality in it because the ready room is done. 